This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Such a privilege to be here, to actually look at God's Word freely and joyfully and to have time to ponder about it together. And it's a joy to be here with everyone here. I thank you for your fellowship and uh, just being here today is a great encouragement. Let us begin by committing ourselves to God as we um, ask Him to teach us His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for a place that we can freely learn and freely um, respond and freely sing. Father, we do not take this for granted because many do not have this privilege. Father, we pray, God, in the comfort that we have, that Your Word continue to be true and real, that we continue to engage with it because we need Your Word uh, to live out the life that we are called to live. So grant us a mind that can understand a heart that can respond, and hands that can live it out um, to glorify you. In Jesus' name, Amen. I'd like to begin this afternoon with this question. What is the right way to live our lives? What is the right way to live our lives? You know, if there's a pendulum, oh, do I have a PowerPoint? I've got uh, this cute little pendulum. Uh, that's supposed to appear. Ah, there you go. Yep. Now, on one end of the pendulum, um, people will say, to live a right life, we need to have a long list of uh, moral and legal checklists of requirements on how to live in the right way. On the other end of pendulum, some people will be offended to even hear this question. There's no one particular right way. The good way, the feel-good way is the right way. So you can have two extremes, one with a long checklist and one who says we just do what we want. But what is the right way to live our lives? This afternoon we are back on the Sermon on the Mount series where Jesus was still sitting on the mountainside to teach his disciples while a large crowd of people gathered to listen in. Last week Jesus taught how blessed are his disciples the kingdom people, because they will exchange their spiritual bankruptcy, their mourning, their meekness, their longing for righteousness, they will exchange all of that for the kingdom of heaven, for comfort, for inheritance, for fullness. And the disciples are blessed because their expression of mercy, their loyal allegiance to God, their proclaiming of the good news, that is that there's peace between man and God possible in Christ, and their perseverance in persecution, all of this will end up with them receiving mercy themselves. They will receive a, a great reward from God. In fact, they will see God because they are the children of God. In fact, all the blessings we've heard last week from Matthew 5 verse 1 to verse 12 are not prescription on how to get into heaven. It is a description of the kingdom people. So in fact, the identity of the kingdom people results in a very different kind of life. Their life is likened to be sought of the earth and liked in a very dark world. The teachings of Jesus were radical and authoritative at the same time, such that some will start to follow him and others will reject him. Now, as Jesus proclaims blessing and teachings in today's passage, um, what it means to live as kingdom people, 
some in the crowd perhaps began to have questions actually about Jesus' teaching. Some possibly questioned whether Jesus was making the teachings of Moses, of their religious leaders, or perhaps the law and the prophets obsolete. Is Jesus teaching some new thing and going to obsolete the teachings of Moses? So how would Jesus respond to such a question? And what more will he say? So let's find out by stepping into today's passage, beginning with verse 17 and 18. Look at it with me in your bulletin. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, but will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Do not think, says Jesus, that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, the, the question for us is, what is the law and what is the prophets? Now, laws, the things we think about, oh, of course it includes all the rules, regulations, the Ten Commandments. But the law and the prophets, in the context of scriptures, is never just about rules and regulations. The law signifies the, the five books of Moses, some call it the Pentateuch, uh, or simply the law. And the prophets actually refers to the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Matthew uses this later on his, in, in Matthew's Uh, In his gospel, he says this, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is in Matthew 22. And Luke's account, likewise, when he speaks, when he records the saying of Jesus, Jesus says this in in Luke's account of the gospel. Jesus says, Everything must be fulfilled as written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So the law and the prophets actually is a collective word. It actually means the Old Testament. So here Jesus goes right into the heart of everything that the Jews lived and hoped for. The law and the prophets. Because they represent the way God's people can live with God. And they represent the promises that God will give to His people. So Jesus goes right to it and He says, I have not come to turn away, turn you away from God's law or God's promises. I've come to accomplish it. The whole of scriptures. That's what verse 18 tells us. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now what is Jesus saying? Jesus is declaring that he has come to accomplish the whole Old Testament scriptures because the whole Old Testament actually points to him. It points to God's promise. It points to God's Messiah King. That's why Matthew took Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to chapter 4 to say that Jesus fulfills, Jesus fulfills, Jesus fulfills because He is going to fulfill everything. And so eventually, Jesus will fulfill the law and the prophets at the climax of the gospel at the end, which if I just summarize, it is the cross of Christ that He brought peace between humanity and and God, and the resurrection of Christ at the grave, when the, when the tomb could no longer keep him, he says that neither can the tomb keep his people. God's kingdom people will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. And that was what Jesus has come to fulfill. 
So here Jesus actually affirms in this passage the importance of the Old Testament scriptures in at least two ways. The first one is to affirm in verse 17, 18 that he fulfills the purpose of the law and the prophets. But the second thing he wants to say is in verse 19 and 20 that the spirit of the law actually helps kingdom people know how to live as kingdom people. Okay? Let me read verse 19 to 20 for us. He says this, Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now verse 17, which we have spent a bit of time on up to now, is actually the key to unlock the rest of today's passage. Because just as the beatitude last week is not a prescription of how to get into heaven, it's a description of the kingdom people. So if you come to today's passage in verse 17, this um, is not a prescription of how to work harder to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is a description of how kingdom people are to live in the right manner. The kingdom people do not set aside the law. Instead, they practice and teach them as the king himself have taught them. So that is how verse 20 will come in. Let's look at verse 20. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me just pause at this verse again for, for, for now. If you are listening to this verse, as a crowd around Jesus at the mountainside, the first thing that will happen is your jaw will just drop right down to the grass and probably roll down the hill. Because the reality is, the people who has the highest chance to fulfill righteousness by law are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is a shocking news because to those who are listening, if they can't get in, how are we going to get in? Because if there's anyone capable to look righteous, that is to live kind of the right manner, is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. If there's a checklist of keeping the laws, they will be the one with the most checklist, and most people will not have. So it's hard to imagine anyone who can actually match the scores, not to mention to supersede the scores of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because they were the ones, on Sabbath, they'll count their footsteps. They were the ones who were fast and the whole world knows they're fasting. They are the ones who pray loudly in public square. All the right words. Yet Jesus says, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What kind of righteousness is Jesus talking about? If you look at this carefully, the righteousness here is not, as some quickly want to put in, the righteousness that Jesus gives, um, that he has himself give it. Um, the theological term for this is uh, imputed righteousness. This verse is not saying that um, Jesus is saying that God's righteous, Jesus' righteousness come to us so we will surpass. But if you look carefully at the rest of the passage, he's saying that the righteousness here is actually a kind of practical righteousness. It's actually being lived out. It's a practical righteousness. That is the way we are to live rightly as kingdom people. 
So if that is a practical righteousness, then the question is, how are we going to supersede Pharisees and teachers of the law? To understand that, we have to step back and look at how the Pharisees work out their righteousness, right? The righteousness measured by Pharisees and the teachers is this. How righteous we are depends on how well we keep the letter of the law. The righteous measure, righteousness measured by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law does not look at the heart. Okay. In fact, it does not matter how dark or evil our heart is. If we can keep the checklist, we are considered righteous. And how frightening this actually can mean. It means that we can wrap a very dark heart with many praiseworthy righteous acts around and meet all the checklist. If you put it in our modern context, we can attend church every Sunday without fail, rain or shine, sick, fever or not. We can serve as teachers, as leaders, as musicians for decades. We can give lots of money. We can top the donation drives. We can meet a whole list of checklists that most professing Christians are struggling with. Yet all along, we can hide within all of these righteous acts a dark, self-praising, others-despising heart. Because no one can see. Only God can see it. For the Pharisaic checklist, righteousness look at how many ticks you can have on your achievement boards. And the Pharisees will get the most checks because no one can outperform them. Yet this checklist righteousness will not get anyone into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says in verse 20. Now the righteousness of the king it's totally different because the righteousness that the king demands goes right into the heart of the people. For a person to enter the kingdom of heaven, he or she must have a greater righteousness that reveals a transformed heart that only kingdom people have. Let's look at the first example of murder as the king explains uh, the true spirit of the law. Look at verse 21 and 22. With me, and there are a few more examples coming along, but it actually unpacks the key that we are talking about from verse 17 to 20. So look at verse 21. You have heard that was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is ransomable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You have heard the checklist righteousness says, you shall not murder or you'll be judged. But that's not enough. Jesus says, but I tell you, God looks much deeper into the source of murder, into the very heart. If you harbor anger towards a brother or sister, you are subjected to judgment. If the anger manifests into hatred, you call a raka. You're answerable to the court. If you're angry enough and you have such hatred within that you manifest into a scornful calling of another person, you fool, you are in danger of the fire of hell. You know, the Pharisaic checklist keeps the letter of the law, do not murder. The king looks at the spirit of the law. He looks at the heart because there is no place for hatred. There's no place for anger. There's no place for despise in the kingdom of heaven. And say, if that's what you have, this is not the way 
to the kingdom of heaven, all the kingdom people. To the Pharisees, it's just enough not to cross the line of murder. To Jesus, murder is only the outward expression of the problem in the heart. So Jesus looks at anger and scorn within the heart. In fact, he goes on verse 23 to 26, that if there's unsettled anger between two professing believers, they are to stop whatever sacrifice they are giving to God and be reconciled with the other before returning to sacrifice. So this is actually a very radical thing. Can you imagine, just an example, right? The, the church, in the church setting, you have a lot of people and the collection bag comes along and you're about to give your collection and then you turn, you saw that brother or sister that you have unforgiveness and maybe you've offended the person and everything and you have put in, Jesus says, stop! <laughs> everything freeze, right? Run over, reconcile first before you come back and finish it. Because... The sacrifice is nothing as important as the person who sacrificed. That's what God is saying when he comes. The Pharisees check this of murder. No. The heart that can cause murder. Again, he moved on. Jesus said, you have heard, but I tell you. Look at the next one, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, the Pharisees, they draw the line of adultery this way, right? A person cannot have sexual relationship with a married person other than one spouse. So the Pharisee checklist says, this act, no, 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 is sinful. But Jesus says, the heart that moves in that direction has already sinned. The one who rejects the spirit of the law gives themselves, they, they have plenty of concession. Actually, they can last long. As long as you don't act, it's okay. But Jesus says, no. The heart that moves in that direction, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Well, th- this verse has caused a lot of pain in a lot of people, young men or young ladies or old men, old ladies, because oh, they're always committing adultery. Here, it's not saying that as you walk across the road, you saw someone that looked gorgeous and said, oh God, I've done it. What it's saying here is that when the person have long walked past you, that what you are formulating in your mind, or the people who have, you have interacted with, you're formulating something that God says you should never have. Now, if you are here earlier in the morning, Second Samuel David fall into a, a serious sin because what he desired end up become a reality. So, so Jesus says that it is dangerous to last. So dangerous, he gives this really shocking analogy. He says in verse 29, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gorge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to stumble, Cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. We should be seeing a lot of one eye, one arm people in this world. No, Jesus, he actually does not play down his expectations, so neither should we. Okay, But we have to look at it carefully. What is he trying to say? The gorging out of your most important eye, unless you're a left-hander, but normally your right is considered the more important your right hand is the more important hand. It's meant to emphasize that the kingdom of heaven is more important and the kingdom of heaven has no place for lust and adultery. They are reserved for hell. Do we see how Jesus says, but I tell you, 
silence any voice that try to say Jesus is trying to obsolete the law? Do we see what Jesus really means? That those who belong to the kingdom of heaven must have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Kingdom people are not living based on checklists. They are living out the spirit of the law. Now, there will be a few more examples that Jesus is going to speak about, which I can touch on briefly, uh, very briefly only. But if we feel that it's almost impossible, uh, the impossibility of perfectly achieving this spirit of the law, then we are starting to realize why Jesus has to be the one to actually fulfill it. We'll start to realize that we actually do need the King to transform our hearts and our minds so that we can live by His power and out of a gratitude and longing for Him. And we can never be perfect and get into heaven. Because the harder we work, the more we realize how poor in spirit we are. The more we try hard, we start to realize how we long that God will actually bring about His complete righteousness. It just sounds like last week's beatitude, isn't it? That is the kind of kingdom people. But how can we be better or greater or more surpassing in righteousness than the Pharisees? This is what this is, this is how we should see it. The difference between the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness expected by the king is not a quantitative difference. What I mean is, it's not by he has 10 checks, I need to have 15 checks. The difference is, the, the righteousness of the Pharisees and the righteousness of God's people, they are qualitatively different. Okay? Hold that thought. It's qualitatively different. So, it is different in nature, not in difference in a checklist. One lives by checklists and make themselves feel good and look good and more assured because they have a lot of checklists. The other lives out the spirit of the law because their hearts are being transformed more and more and they are transformed and they want to live in a different way by the heart, the intention or the spirit of the law. So let's go on as we see how Jesus unpacks that. Verse 31, it has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, this is, um, if we pull back to the Old Testament, this is what Deuteronomy says. Moses gave this um, words. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, what happens is the man writes a certificate of divorce for the woman. Now the original intention of a certificate of divorce was for the protection of the woman actually. It is meant to be a legal renouncing of the rights of this man on this woman henceforth. Okay, she, He has no more legal or rights over the woman. But along the way, the Pharisees and rabbis start to argue, right? what does it mean? to displease him. Um, and then, believe it or not, in, in the oral tradition, there is one trend of thought to say, if the woman burnt the man's toast, it's enough to divorce her. Any wives want to like take the frying pan and say, you toast your own bread. Uh, but but, but that, is, 
But that that is actually what is available even in Jesus' time. What has meant to be used for good has been used for evil. And it becomes a checklist. In fact, such is the heart of man that, you know, a, a Pharisee can look at the Gentiles and say, oh, those immoral people, many wives. Look at me, I only have one. I've divorced the last six. <laughs> you see what's happening? That the checklist law of the Pharisaic righteousness will not bring you into the kingdom of heaven. The one who sets his heart on divorce will always find a way to get it. Now, the topic of divorce is a huge topic. Today's sermon just cannot fully address it. You can try some Q&A if you want later on. But um, this is the spirit that Jesus explained in verse 32. Okay, Divorce, if you look at verse 32, divorce is a concession when sexual immorality occurs, when the act that betrays the one flesh occurs, and it can be made worse when one of the offenders refuses to repent. Jesus says, there is a concession for divorce. But it's a concession. It is not a command. That the moment a sexual sin happens, you say, see, let's divorce. Because we will all be husbandless as a church. Who, the two, those that God has joined together, we should not let it dissolve lightly. There are more for that, but we have to move on. So look on to the next one, verse 33, on oaths. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill the, to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. You know, on the surface, the Pharisaic kind of checklist righteousness tells God's people, When you make an oath, don't break it. But Jesus turns around and says, the truthfulness of your word should not depend on whether you have made an oath or not. Whether you made an oath or not, you should be just as truthful. Your word should be able to stand on either account. Because in the time of Jesus, oaths is such a complicated thing. You know, you, you swear your oath by your, by your head or by something, you can kind of get away. But if you swear by God's name, it's harder to get. There's a whole range of oaths that you can go through. And Jesus says, just let your yes be yes and no be no. To complicate using oaths comes from the devil. And again, Jesus moves on to verse 38 about revenge. He says this, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now if you read on to until verse 42, uh, this portion becomes easily misunderstood. No, does Jesus mean that you no? Know, as Christians, we should now be floor mat. You know, if someone slaps you on one side, you say, ah, this side also, and you slap. Uh, walk one mile, and say, ah, let me walk two. Is Jesus asking us to be doormats? No, to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to go back to where the idea of eye for eye and tooth for tooth come from. And let me refer us back to Leviticus 24, verse 20. It's on the screen. This is what Leviticus says. Fracture for fracture, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. There you have it, written in the law. Is Jesus rejecting what was said in the law? That we should not take revenge. 
I think by now, if you're in this church, you say, let's look at context, Andrew, let's look at the context. And if you look at context, you'll realize that it's not about revenge. It's actually the opposite of revenge. Let me just read to you the context of this passage that's been misused. This is what Leviticus actually says. 24, verse 18 to 22. I just took an extract here. Verse 18. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. You must cover back what you have taken. And move on. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution. But whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigners and the native born because I am the Lord your God. The code eye for eye, two for two was never intended as a code for vengeance. It's actually the very opposite. To prevent personal vengeance is to exercise righteous judgment. Whether you are a foreigner, you are a Jew, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you are a woman, you are a man, it doesn't matter because you will have to face the same thing because God says, because I am God. So for those who are not able to have vengeance, God says, it's not for you because I will make things right. So Jesus is totally anti-Hollywood style vengeance, you know. When justice system fails, the guns comes out, right? The bigger, the more uh, dollars rolls in because that is uh, the way of the world. But Jesus says, do not take revenge. Relinquish your revenge. In fact, even when we are wrong, do not immediately think that we have the rights. For revenge. In fact, the Lord says, do not take revenge, leave it to the Lord's wrath. So this passage, if you look at it again with these eyes, that is not rejecting kind of justice system, it's not promoting being a mat syndrome, no floor mat syndrome. Jesus is against the misuse of the Pharisees to exercise revenge because kingdom people do not exercise revenge. Verse 20, unless your righteousness surpassed that of the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now as we pause here, let's, let's just kind of take a deep breath and ask ourselves, why did Jesus demand such radical righteousness? It's not radical to God, but it is radical to the people around the hills, right, as they listen. It's, it's radical to people in Jesus' time. Why did Jesus ask for such radical righteousness? The reason is not because we can earn ourselves into the kingdom, but that's what Jesus does for us. The reason is because the way of kingdom people must live this way, because that is who we are. They cannot be kingdom people if they live like worldly people. In fact, look at the last few verses, 43 to 48. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The reason Jesus calls for such radical obedience is because those who love God and those who call God their Father in heaven, they are to reflect the image of God to the world. They reflect the Father's image not by the checklist, which actually reduce obligation. They reflect the image of God, the Father, by revealing His love, the way that the Spirit of the law demands. So what the Pharisees, in the end, right, they summarize their legalistic righteousness this way. This is their summary. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, verse 42, 43. 
But Jesus, he summarizes the practical righteousness of the kingdom people this way. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Verse 44. For by this, you will reveal yourself to be the children of the Father in heaven. What a difference between the two kinds of righteousness. And Jesus elaborates further, while the world knows how to love its own, this kind of warm, fuzzy love actually has no reward. Okay, we, we, we see a lot of love uh, movies and all, all the romance. Or Jesus says, a love that can be reciprocated, it's not a love that will get a reward. This is what Jesus says, verse 46. If you love those who, if you love, those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. Indeed, instead, the children of our perfect Heavenly Father must learn God's perfect love. As 45 says that God, look at 45, causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the last verse, be perfect therefore as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So as we kind of conclude this, this whole teachings of Jesus, let us come back to our starter question. What is the right way to live our lives? If we're not Christians, the answer is this. We must repent, we must follow Jesus, and we must depend on His fulfillment of the law and the prophet so that we can be saved. But if we are Christians, what is the right way to, to, for the followers of Jesus then to live our lives? We are not to live like the Pharisees with a legalistic checklist. Neither can we live like the world, as if it doesn't matter. We are to live out the practical righteousness that the king demands of us, because such is the value of the law once the king has explained it to us. It is not to condemn, but it's actually to teach us what it means to be kingdom people, to live a life that actually pleases the king and reflects the love of the Father, that the love of the Father, and also to help us and teach us that the way we live is actually to live meekly in this world and to wait with great hope for the return of the King. And in the meantime, to know that we who are poor in spirit will one day enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray and thank God for His word. Father Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill it so that we can be saved. We thank you for our Lord Jesus that he calls us his kingdom people and call us to live a life that can reflect your love to this world that is darkened. So Father, we thank you and we pray God that you help us that we can live a life that is like Christ and not a life that everyone praises but ends up in hell. So help us look to Jesus and help us to look to Him as our King. Father, we do not just want to love our neighbors and hate our enemies, but teach us to also love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us so that the world may see your love that is unworthy because it is heavenly. 
Help us that we may glorify Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.